Hello and welcome to Liftoff from your friends at Relay FM. It is brought to you this time by Eero. Liftoff is a fortnightly show where you don't have to be a rocket scientist to understand the latest news about space and related subjects. My name is Jason Snell, and I'm joined, as always, by my co-host, Mr. Stephen Hackett. Hi, Stephen. Hey, Jason. How are you? Um, you know, doing okay. We're all, uh, you know, mostly inside, not seeing a lot of people. Um, had the we're going to talk about later the commercial crew announcement, which I was anticipating we would have a conversation about if we wanted to go to it. <laughs> and then I thought about that today, and I, I had a laugh, a rueful laugh, and uh, I'll just stay here for uh, it. I think I, I will think. too. Let's put a pin in it, though. I do want to go to the SL, uh, SLS launch in uh, yeah, sure. 2030, 2032. So yeah, that's right, that's right. I hope <laughs> that I I have not died of old age, extreme <laughs> oh, old age, by the time the first oh, SLS launch oh, happens. Oh boy. Uh, yeah, yep. we're, we're all at home. A lot of people are at home. Of course, if uh, you're out there and you have uh, an essential job and you're out there working, thank you. I hope we're, everyone's staying safe. We're going to talk about NASA working from home, which is not something yes. I had really considered. I mean, we knew that a bunch of the centers were closed or really doing minimal activity. Uh, but then uh, a pair of articles uh, caught my eye, one from JPL and one from our friend Lauren Grush over at The Verge, talking about, uh, in particular managing things like the Curiosity rover, which is an ongoing mission, right? Just because you can't be in the office, you can't, well, I guess you could, you could park in and walk away for six weeks. But the idea is they're going to keep science and exploration going. And so NASA's centers have implemented remote work for for most workers. There are still some jobs that have to be done in person. Uh, Apparently, one of those is sending commands from JPL to the Deep Space Network. They have to do from JPL physically. So they have a couple people doing, you know, the minimum to keep that running. Uh, But a lot of teams are working from home. They have, uh, just like the rest of us, right, video calls and phone calls. And there was a quote from somebody, I think, in Lauren's article saying that she was often on two or three video calls at a time between different teams. Oh, boy. Which just sounds like a nightmare, but... Sounds not good. Sounds not good. But the way that, especially uh, looking at this Curiosity team, the way they work is you have teams of scientists, you have teams of engineers, you have people who know the rover and what it can do, and they all have to come together to map out future moves of the rover, where they're going to drive it, what they're going to do. And as you can imagine, that's a very collaborative back and forth process, and that's easier to do when everyone's just down the hall from each other, but now you've got to do it virtually. Yeah, I was also, uh, the lead art in this story uh, on The Verge is great because it shows uh, a person, Carrie Bridge, who works for NASA, and her home workstation, and I laughed because it's two iMacs, yeah. <laughs> a uh, what looks like a MacBook Pro, and an iPad. You know, sometimes you need more than one iMac in order to yeah. do space. It's, uh, yeah, I mean, all. Uh, let me blow your mind, Stephen. In a way, working uh, on a space probe or a Mars probe is the ultimate work from home, right? The oh, ultimate distance work. Yes. Because even when you're at the your desk at JPL, <laughs> you're having to radio your commands out to the the Mars rover, right? So, you know, now you do it from 
from your home in pajama pants. It's yeah. fine. The additional distance is not all that great, relatively speaking, is what you're saying. <laughs> yeah, I, exactly. I think it's a it's a remote operation to begin with, but the teamwork and and this is the point, right? The teamwork is not. The teamwork is you got a bunch of people, and and some of that's remote, right? Where you've got different science centers. So I'm sure that I'm sure that people who work for NASA have a lot of remote skills because NASA centers are distributed, and then you often have the the science centers on a project that are in different places at different universities not in the u.s outside the u.s so i'm sure they've got these skills but now they have to do it for everything including the people who they actually did share an office with before i like some of the technical details just because i'm a nerd uh they interviewed uh a guy named matt who uh works on the curiosity project and he deals a lot with the 3d imagery and so he's in the photo he's wearing 3d glasses which is kind of funny yeah uh, his, are, his are like actual like because it's the red it's the red blue anaglyph glasses yeah. and he's got like them in plastic frames and stuff which yeah minor minor paper frames i was, I was gonna say they're from, not the ones you get in the cereal box <laughs> the li- literally the one the ones i use when they post an anaglyph image uh, are from a comic book a 3d comic <laughs> book that i bought in the 80s and i have kept those glasses so uh shout out to 3d dn agents number one and only uh, because that's where i got it and i still have that pair but he's got he's a pro he's a pro he has professional 3 that's classes. right and he's talking about yeah like i've got virtual linux machines and we remote into everything and like, uh, yeah of course you do because you're nasa and you plan yeah. for this Com- and computers yeah yeah so anyways i like some of the technical aspect of that but it sort of uh was a nice story that you know people who are working on things like the osiris rex mission or curiosity they're figuring all this out too just like the rest of us yeah, it's what we what we all have to do, right? But mm-hmm. I, I at least they're prepared and capable of doing it, so that's good. Yeah, apparently NASA and JPL and others started in early March when it looked like this was coming, uh, getting some of these procedures and, and doing test runs where parts of teams would be at home or they would be in the office but not be able to speak to each other and like work remotely in person kind of, like get used to this. And so it seems like they were as well prepared as anybody to make this transition. All right, shall we talk about uh we have some 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 news from outside the solar system is how I'm going to phrase this. We have some exoplanet news and even some exocomet news. Do you want to you tell people about our first exoplanet story? I do. So I want to talk about Kepler 1649C, which is uh currently the contender to be the most earth-like exoplanet found to date. Uh, so a little bit about this. This uh, pl- this transit was detected in older Kepler, Kepler data. And we've talked about how Kepler and now TESS work, where they're looking at pretty large sections of the sky. It's a lot of data to sort through, and you have to look at it over time so you can actually see the transit. And it part, a lot of that is done with software. They have these uh, computer models that they run the data through and they understand, it understands kind of what to look for. But there's this team called the Kepler False Positive Working Group that then comes back through that data to find things that the the modeling may have missed. And this is where 1649C uh, comes into play. It had originally been uh, written off, but now it's back on the table. And it's really interesting because like I said, it's potentially the most Earth-like found yet. It's believed to be 1.06 Earth masses, so just a hair bigger uh, than our planet in terms of mass. 
it orbits pretty closely to its star. In fact, it orbits its star like every 19 days or so. So it's really close. So you would think, well, that's not habitable, right? It's way too close. It'd be way too hot. But it turns out its star is a red dwarf, which is much smaller and cooler than, for instance, our own star, our, our sun here. And so it can be closer, and it makes the habitable zone much closer to the to the star. So it's believed that it gets as much as 75% of the light from its red dwarf as we get from the sun, and it means that temperatures could be very similar to what we have here. So it's way closer, but because it's a red dwarf, it kind of balances out, if you will. Right. And then, of course, the caveat that we always talk about when we talk about exoplanets around red dwarfs, which are the most common stars out there, is that they are they tend to be flare stars. They shoot out lots and lots of nasty flares that can cook planets and make it impossible for life to form. Um, and, you know, that's the case here, although I guess they haven't seen any flares from this particular star. So uh, that's something. Yeah. So it's interesting there. And, uh, you know, it needs more study. There's not much known about the atmosphere, which, of course, is key to life and could be key from protecting the planet from at least low-grade flares. If it's going to flare, if it's going to take a direct hit that close, it, uh, probably atmosphere won't do that much. But yeah. it could it could help deflect um, somewhat. So that could be uh, mm-hmm. a, a factor here as well. Uh, and the size could be a little off because it's really far out. But uh, I thought it was interesting because there have been so many exo planets found. And even in this old data, they're continuing to sort through it because the data set is just so large. So uh, it was neat to, to read about this one sort of coming back off the off the dead list and it being so Earth-like. Yeah, Kepler is gone, but it's still uh, finding new yeah. exoplanets via its data, which is great. However, Stephen, uh, you, you get an exoplanet, you lose an exoplanet. <laughs> <laughs> because the other exoplanet news we've got is the flip side of that, which is that in 2008, um, it was announced that one of the first exoplanets to ever be directly imaged by a telescope. This is a single planet around the star of Fomalhaut. Uh, I don't know how to pronounce that, but that's what I'm going to say, Fomalhaut. Sure. Uh, it's it's uh, it's the formal hut. Uh, it's 25 light years away from Earth. It's kind of off in its own corner. It's the brightest star in that part of the sky. Um, it was imaged a lot. It's 16 times brighter than the sun. Um, and they were looking through images, and they noticed these two um, these two images. What 2004 and 2006 or something like that. And they and and this little spot, and they said, "Aha! We're imaging a planet directly. This planet is uh, bigger than Jupiter." But it, it and it's far out from its star, but we have seen it move, and so therefore, boom, it's an exoplanet. But <laughs> a guy named Andres Gaspar, who is an astronomer at the University of Arizona, was looking through uh, images of Fomalhaut and said, well, "Wait a second! It looks like a planet here and here, but then it looks like a, a, a kind of a cloudy kind of thing here, and then it's gone by 2014." Oh no. <laughs> So did it evaporate? Probably not. Did aliens take it away? Probably not. Um, the one theory about what's going on here is that this was actually a fortuitous uh, spotting of a collision between a couple of large objects like asteroids or something like that. And we saw a bright um, debris blob and thought it was a planet 
but it over the course of a decade that uh, the results of that just kind of like scattered away and drifted away and then it became nothing. Um, and if that is what it is, that's it's very rare to, to see something like that. They don't happen very often. And if we happen to be looking at this star at that moment uh, and ended up catching this less than a decade life of a, you know, aftermath of a collision, that's, a, that's quite a thing. But uh, those things happen. So it may be that it's not an exoplanet, but it is something uh, even, you know, more surprising and interesting. Uh, who knows? But there's more to be done there. So anyway, the number, everybody got really excited and they incremented the number of uh, found exoplanets by one. And then somebody ran in the door and said, not so fast. And they took it right back down. Yep. Yeah. <laughs> well, it's interesting, too, because this was such an early example that helped set off the the hunt for exoplanets and turns out that it was something like you said even more rare and unusual that just adds another layer of intrigue to this story and they're going to look through the images and see if they can find more data try to understand what happened here because it would be really weird for a planet like this just to fall apart uh so uh yeah the the dual um debris field theory is definitely the the winner so far but i expect we'll hear more about this over time i'm not going to take away our Exocomet, Stephen. They can't take that away from us. <laughs> can't to take it from I, me. To I, Borisov. This is the second interstellar object to be spotted by us. Again, they didn't just start sending the aliens. Didn't just start sending interstellar objects our way last yeah, year. Footballs at us. We're capable of finding them now, of identifying objects that have drifted into our solar system from outside it, and then are headed back out that way. And this is the the second one of these, and it's a comet. And a lot of the stories have been about how, even though it's got this hyperbolic trajectory, it's not going to stay inside the solar system. Its behavior and the way it looks, it looks like a comet. And it kind of broke into a couple of pieces on its way out of the solar system. It's like, yeah, that's what comets do. It's all just kind of, it's a comet. But there was something interesting that happened. Uh, the, the scientists who are using the Atacama Large Millimeter Submillimeter Array, or ALMA. It's pretty good. Yeah, not bad. Alma uh, spotted it, looked at it, and what they found is that the gas that was outgassing, because, you know, comets come around a star and it warms everything up and gas kind of shoots off, and that's why we get long comet tails and, and it kind of it's a melting snowball kind of thing. Um, the gas coming from this comet, Alma found, um, contained more common carbon monoxide than has been detected in any other comet this close to the sun. In fact, the concentration of carbon monoxide in the gas coming from the comet was between 9 and 26 times higher than in the average comet in our solar system. Now, they also noted uh, the presence of hydrogen cyanide in the comet, but that is a common thing that we see in comets. So, but what about the carbon monoxide? Generally, what this means is that this thing must have formed in a very, very cold region of space further out than where most of the comets that plunge toward our sun come from in our solar system. So we know a little bit about how uh, Borisov, Comet 2i Borisov, is a little unusual. It came from a very different, di very distant region, not just of interstellar space, because of course it did, but even wherever it was formed in a protoplanetary disk kind of thing of a forming solar system, it was out in the outer reaches of that, which might actually, uh, and I'm just making this up, but might actually explain why it ultimately became an interstellar traveler, is that it was tenuously connected to its solar mm -hmm. system and perhaps got uh, you know, pulled away by a passing star and began its long journey, which... Uh, ended up passing by our sun and letting Alma take a take a peek at it. So, you know, it's still a comet. 
I mean, there's less of it now because it evaporated and kind of broke in two and stuff, but uh, it's still there and they're not going to take that one away from us. Can't take it from us. Don't do it. No, Don't no do not it. like the that exoplanet. <laughs> uh, you also have a story in here about matter and antimatter asymmetry. It's not about uh, Star Trek, although it could be. Um, that's where a lot of kids learned that antimatter was a thing, or at least thought it was like a fictional thing. And it turns out it's not, it's a real thing. Um, and I like fun physics stories and, and this is one of those. So the idea here is that generally there's symmetry in, in physics and you should have the, the creation of the universe should have created an equal amount of matter and antimatter. And then what that would have mean, meant was they would they would touch each other and and turn into pure energy and explosion and they cancel each other out basically, and we wouldn't be here. But we are here. There's more matter than antimatter in the universe by a lot. And the question for physics has been, why? Like why is that? What fundamental thing about the the laws and the the particles that make up our universe explain the lack of symmetry between matter and antimatter. It is a fundamental question about why we exist. Because if there are these two types and one annihilates the other, why is there more of the one than the other so that the, so that it can still be hanging around and we're all made of matter and not antimatter? So an international team of 500 physicists from 12 countries have reported that they've uh, noticed what could actually be an asymmetry in the physics that might explain why the universe looks like it does. It's high-level physics, so yes, it's really complicated, but the idea basically involves neutrinos, which are those extremely light, non-interactive particles. These are the kind of things where they want to find them, so they have to like make a well at the bottom of a deep hole in Antarctica, or they're down in a cave somewhere, because you need incredibly sensitive detectors to detect these, not because there aren't lots of them, but because they so weakly interact with uh, normal matter that it can be hard to spot them. So this new discovery suggests that antineutrinos, because again, you've got matter and antimatter, antineutrinos don't behave the same way as neutrinos. Neutrinos have a pattern of oscillation. They turn into kind of like a bunch of different kinds of neutrino. And the, their evidence suggests that the antimatter version of a neutrino doesn't behave the same way. Now, here is the boiled, 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 super boiled down quote from a scientist trying to speak to people who don't understand high-level physics. So I'm going to read that, which is, in relative terms, more neutrino muons going to neutrino electrons than anti-neutrino muons going to anti-neutrino electrons. Basically, what this means is you end up with more of the matter than the antimatter, and that's what they're looking for. And on the scales of the universe, this might be, there have been previous asymmetries spotted, but not big enough to explain why you would have such a disparity in terms of matter and antimatter in the universe. This might do the trick, but it's an initial result. It is, as with anything that's super important and and seems to solve a major question in physics, it needs a lot of checking. They need to be a lot more certain about it. There needs to be more experimental verification. And of course, neutrinos are very hard to see, so it takes a lot of effort to do it. But I think it's really interesting as an example of how we are still, in the year 2020, learning fundamental things about how the universe came to be and how it works that we haven't figured out yet and are still working on it. So sometimes you... 
read histories of physics and you read about Einstein and you you know you read about uh, quantum physics and you and you think oh well we pretty much figured it all out and that is not true the work continues and this would be a, an amazing result if it's finally kind of endorsed so just a fun physics story I thought I'd share yeah that's no it's super interesting and I think this article does a good job at bringing it down where it's understandable because antimatter is an extremely complex topic right we've had guests on talk, talking about that and it's a it's a good read and i think it is uh definitely a question i haven't thought of because i'm not a uh, this is not really my field but, but once you is. once you think about the two facts right once you get it in your head that that there's basically symmetry but there's also lots of matter and there's not a lot where's all the antimatter it, it is just from those two simple things you you have that question of like well, wait a second. <laughs> How could that be? Like, why? Why is it the way it is? And that's that's a classic scientific question. It's great. Uh, just real quick before our break, uh, this week marks the 30th anniversary of Hubble, uh, of it being uh, launched in the the back of a space shuttle and then being mm-hmm. deployed. Um, we are going to do a full Hubble episode here um in the next couple of episodes so yeah uh, uh, we'll do a full-on 30th between now and the 30th anniversary of the of the activation of it which also coincides with the 30th anniversary of them realizing they made a horrible mistake and they're gonna have to fix it which they did so i think yeah well, i think we'll do a whole episode in the next couple of episodes about the history of yeah. hubble and that whole story because it's a great story uh, yeah but, you know with with triumph and tragedy and more triumph and yeah it's awesome it's really fascinating so we just wanted to point that out um and we will circle back around to that in the coming episodes yeah all right this episode of liftoff is made possible by Eero. Spotty Wi-Fi is just the worst. It's really frustrating. You tried to go stream something or join a meeting or just browsing, and you're in that sonnet room of your house, and you just know it's not going to work. Well, your home deserves fast, reliable Wi-Fi wherever and whenever you need it. Eero blankets your whole home with the Wi-Fi reliability that you want, eliminating poor coverage, dead spots, and buffering. With Eero, you'll have a consistently strong signal wherever you need it. And for a limited time, Eero's mesh Wi-Fi system starts at just $79. So now is the time to upgrade. Eero sets up in just minutes with their super handy mobile app. You plug the Eero into your modem or router box. You manage everything from that app. And before you know it, you're ready to go with all these great features like pausing the Wi-Fi for dinner or giving you alerts if new devices attempt to join the network. You can set up a guest network, which I really appreciate. Lots of really awesome features. I've used Eero for a long time. One of my favorite things is the coverage I get even in the backyard. So this time of year, it's really nice in Memphis, and I've been working out back on the patio a good bit. And it's just like being in my office in terms of network speed, which is fantastic. With Eero, there'll be no more Netflix buffering in the bedroom, no more complaints of Xboxes with bad signals, and no more worrying that your security camera will drop offline. Eero has fixed my Wi-Fi woes. Let it fix yours, and it can ha- you can have this fix as soon as tomorrow. You want to go to eero.com slash liftoff and enter the code liftoff at checkout to get free overnight shipping on your order. That's eero.com slash liftoff with the code liftoff at checkout to get yours delivered with free overnight shipping. It's eero.com slash liftoff. Our thanks to Eero for the support of this show and Relay FM. 
there's never been a better time to have a better wireless network in your home. <laughs> Just it's been it's been funny the number of friends that I've heard from of like, hey, I've, turns out my Wi-Fi is kind of cruddy. I'm like, yeah, this is what you need yep. right here. Yep. So, Stephen, yes, is it the year of commercial crew? May could be the month of commercial crew. Even what? We're 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 less. Well, okay, we're we're in the window a month away, a month and a week away from maybe having again that's a long way off and things get delayed but maybe having the first commercial crew mission with you know crew on it so it's happening here this got announced i don't know if you have any thoughts about like jim bridenstine sent out a tweet that's how it got announced and nasa had like a like a web page that's like yay we're going to space with american rockets again and playing a video and stuff like that um you know, they they tried to make a big deal about it. This is going to keep happening, right? Because this is a long, slow process that ultimately culminates in a launch. But they did they did try to make a a little bit of an effort out of uh, the announcement that they're they're planning a launch date. They've set a launch date for the first commercial crew mission. Yeah, I was wondering, like, out of the general public, how many people know that we can't launch American astronauts from American soil? I, I actually think a lot. I think a lot of people know that because only because when the space shuttle shut down, I heard from a lot of people who said, well, that's it. We're never going to space again. I was yeah. like, mm, that's not the plan. Um, so I think there might be some of it out there. But you're right. There, it, What's the um, understanding about the existence of commercial crew program and that we're going to do this? I, I would guess it's pretty low. Yeah. And so I think that even if people know that we can't launch from U.S. soil, they want to... Uh, they want to let people know, hey, this is this is coming up, and and I think it is a big deal. I mean, you look at this website, you know, it it's it's a little over the top, right? Like it is very um, uh, patriotic. It's called Launch, Launch America. America, Launch America, in a non-retinographic uh, NASA webmasters, if you're out there listening. <laughs> but and it it shows uh, like the sh- a shuttle launch and a Saturn V launch, and and then uh, Falcon Falcon Nine, <laughs> yeah. Because uh, that's what they're using. So I think it's great that they are uh, making a big deal of this because uh, it, it, they should make a big deal of this. This is a really big step. And like you said, it, it's just another step in the process. This is actually known as Demo Flight 2. It's uh, it's cool. And I'm yeah. excited. And I think that they want the public to be excited, too. Yeah. And I think this is the beginning. Also, people are look, are kind of hungry for good news and things to take their mind off of what's going on in the rest of the world. So I think that they are going to try to play this up between now and then as well, and as they should. And I think that's great. So uh, here's where they are. Here's where they are right now. So this is SpaceX Demo 2. Um, so it's a, it's a test flight. It's not a, a fully operational flight. They did the test flight one where the, the Crew Dragon went uncrewed, except for a mannequin and an Earth-stuffed Earth stuffed animal thing. Uh, up to ISS and and then came back. Okay, they did that. This is the next one uh, where there's going to be astronauts in it. Two of them, two two essentially test pilot astronauts to test the system before they fill it up with. I think four people is the might be the capacity four or five. Currently scheduled for four thirty p.m. Eastern on May twenty seventh. So there's your date from Launch Pad thirty nine A, which is actually where the last shuttle launch took off from. Uh, mm-hmm. which was Atlantis in 2011. I was there for that. It's That was a long time ago. We still haven't done it, but this is the idea. Um, th- that was STS-135. Now, this um, this would be, just to say it again, the first launch of 
astronauts into orbit from the U.S. since that mission. American astronauts are in space now. Well, one is and have been in space all this time, but they've been riding up on Russian Soyuz capsules uh, where we've bought rides, bought seats from Roscosmos, the Russian space agency. And so, and like I said, this is a test flight. So it's two test astronauts and uh, then they get certified. If this goes well, then they, they're like, all right, let's start the program. And then they begin to plan basically like the space planning for the ISS uh, becomes instead of who's riding up and down on Soyuz capsules to who's riding up and down on Soyuz and on commercial crew. Right. And there is another commercial crew done by Boeing um, that is behind. So they have to run another uh, uncrewed test before they can start doing crew. So uh, there is another one, but right now SpaceX is the one that that is the provider that's on the verge of this happening. Ultimately, American launch plans will include both companies and they'll they'll schedule those launches accordingly. I don't think we've seen anything from the commercial crew program about the cadence of these launches or, you know, they, are they going to alternate launch vehicles? Like all that is, I think, still to be determined. Yeah, I think they've, they're playing it by ear because uh, we have to see what happens with Boeing and and Starliner. And they had to do another test because of the problems with their first test. An interesting angle is that because there are these two different spacecraft, there are two different cores of astronauts training on Boeing equipment and on SpaceX equipment. So if you're a pilot, if you're somebody who's running, I don't think if you're like an ISS specialist and you're basically along for the ride, it's as big a deal. But if you're in one of the two main seats for this, like you're either training to be on a SpaceX or a Boeing that's that's part of it. Um, and we should talk about the that two astronauts who are on this. So uh, it's Doug Hurley and Bob Behnken. Doug Hurley was, uh, they're both uh, space shuttle veterans who did two space shuttle launches. Doug Hurley flew on Endeavour to the ISS um, on STS-127, which was in 2009. And he was actually in the pilot seat on the, that last space shuttle mission. So this is the we will have he will he will have nine years apart been a part of the last and the first and the gap in between, uh, which I think is pretty cool. That is pretty cool. Uh, Doug Hurley is from New York. He's got a civil engineering degree from Tulane. He was a Marine pilot. He's a retired Marine colonel, and he is the spacecraft commander for the mission. He's he's te- technically the the ranking of the two officers. Uh, Bob Bankin has two ISS flights on Space Shuttle Endeavour in his background, STS-123 in 2008 and STS-130 in 2010. Across those two missions, he made six different EVAs. So he's got Spacewalk in his background. He's from Missouri. He's got a PhD in mechanical engineering from Caltech and is an Air Force colonel. Um, And what struck me is that this is kind of the uh, young and Crippen model, if you think yeah. back to the first space shuttle mission, which is we want two astronauts who've been around for a while. Crippen hadn't been in space yet, but he'd been part of the like the like the MOL and the Skylab program, and he'd been kicking around in NASA for a while. And of course, John Young was a very much a veteran astronaut, and they were both experienced kind of test pilots, and they were they were that's why they wanted those guys testing out the space shuttle and it this this is like that these these two are both they've been through test pilot stuff at 
uh, Pax River for one and Miramar, I think, for the other, or, or no, for Edwards Air Force Base for the other. So, like, they've got test piloting in their background. They both did two shuttle missions, and uh, they're the ones who are going to shake this thing down. And they've been spending the last a few years not only learning the systems of the Crew Dragon, but really working with SpaceX to define the systems. And mm-hmm. there's a nice video that we'll link to that Lauren Grush from The Verge did where she talked to them and went to Hawthorne um, to see SpaceX. And uh, there's some really nice bits in there about how they would talk about on the shuttle. They'd say, I'm having a hard time with this. Uh, can we change this procedure? And they would basically be like, ha, no, no, we don't change things on the space shuttle. They are the way they are. And on Crew Dragon, like they'll, they'll, they're basically shaking it down and they're providing the testing for this stuff. And they'll say, this doesn't work right. We should make it different. And you know, the next time they run a sim, it's fixed. It's changed because, you know, there aren't as many switches. It's mostly touchscreen controls. And these guys are really giving the real astronaut feedback that SpaceX has been using to determine the best way to provide controls for the astronauts to use on Crew Dragon. So pretty cool. Pretty, pretty cool. These guys have been, you know, they're not just along for the ride. They, they've kind of been uh, shaking this system down for a few years now at SpaceX. Yeah, I think that's hugely important. And I think we're going to see commercial crew astronauts be trained on one or the other system. So when Boeing Starliner is ready to go, they have crew assigned to that program yeah, as well. Yeah, already, already assigned. And so mm-hmm. those people have to wait. Like they, there could be multiple SpaceX missions. The astronauts on the Boeing side can't hop over. We talk about like an Apollo having the backup. But astronauts and all of that. But if you imagine these are two separate systems, so they've basically right. got two separate pipelines for astronauts. Exactly. Another funny thing about their training is that late in the game, we mentioned this on a, a previous episode, they started, uh, they added some new training to to uh, Doug and Bob <laughs> um, because there was this realization that because of the timing of the various Soyuz missions, um, they actually might want to keep them on the ISS for an extended period of time instead of having them kind of like a shuttle mission, sort of say hi and be there for a couple of days and then come home. Currently, there are only three people on the International Space Station as a part of the Expedition 63 mission. There were three astronauts that just returned last Friday as we record this, and there was a time uh, limitation there where their Soyuz wasn't cleared beyond a certain point, so they needed to bring it back. So there's only three people up there now, only one American up there now. And so what NASA has realized a a year ago, or maybe a little bit more, is that they might want these two American astronauts to stay on the International Space Station for a few months. So um, that's the idea right now. Anything could happen. And if there are issues with the capsule or something like that, I mean, there's, there's reasons that it might not happen. But the plan is for them to stay two or three months. They would run experiments. Hurley has been trained... Uh, in the last year to operate the Canadarm, the robot arm on the space station, so that he can be useful in using that to grab things and move them around at the space station. And I mentioned that Bankin had done six spacewalks with the shuttle. Um, so he has spent some of his time the last year or whatever, you know, last period of time since they thought this was a possibility, kind of getting uh, refreshed with and current on how to do uh, EVAs on the International Space Station. So he's available to do spacewalks. Hurley's available to run the robot arm. They've been trained on experiments that are ongoing on the station. So 
in the last year-ish, that has become another angle to this. Is there? It's not just a test flight. It's you know they're they're going to be pressed into service on the International Space Station for a little while. And what's really funny, and this probably won't happen, but it could happen, is if everything goes well with this test flight and they go to the ISS and then they're hanging out up there and they're working up on the ISS, that is the thumbs up potentially for SpaceX to commence official commercial crew operations. Now, one of the interesting wrinkles here that I haven't read a lot about is um, by extending their mission, you're extending the time before the capsule comes back to Earth. Mm-hmm. So there's this question that I'm sure SpaceX asked, which is, well, wait a second, you want your astronauts to stay up there for another two or three months, but does that delay commercial crew for two or three months because you don't want to certify us until that capsule and those astronauts come all the way back and land on Earth? Hmm. And it sounds to me like that's not the case because there is a possibility that if all goes well and they get the thumbs up, that they'll they'll commence the commercial crew program and later this summer, perhaps while those while those guys are still there, the first official commercial crew launch on SpaceX might go to the International Space Station and they might actually have two of these crew dragons up there at the same time, which is kind of wild. And I doubt that will happen. They'll probably bring them back in advance of the next group going, but it's definitely part of the conversation about who is on expedition 63. Um, and that next mission is four astronauts. It's three Americans and, and a Japanese astronaut. Um, so again, early days, they gotta, they gotta launch, they gotta get to ISS and then they're going to have to stay there. But, it may this is this is the shape of this so this may be happening we may have to do one of those live uh, streams where you and i uh, make faces while we're watching nasa video and and hoping for all the rockets to do the right thing yeah count, count me in for that yeah uh, i i agree with you i tend to think that they're going to bring this one back before they launch a second i think it could be very close like scheduled right. where it lands and then the, the next couple of days even the next one takes off, but I, I would imagine they would want one uh, to go through the full cycle. Uh, you know, you didn't mention that the shuttle would wouldn't stay at the space station very long. A lot of that had to do with the consumables that the shuttle required, right. and uh, a capsule like this can stay in orbit attached to the space station much longer uh, before it's got to come back. So the shuttle, being such a, a complex machine. Uh, they could transfer power in some things from the space station, but really, I think the maximum was, you know, at most like not even two weeks, you know, right around two weeks. Basically, the shuttle mission was as long as a shuttle mission could be. Right. Whereas this is designed to dock with ISS and then stay there for months and then be used to return people, ultimately not the same people, right? The, the way they cycle it with the, the Russian capsules is, you know, different people go up and go down, and sometimes it's the same, and sometimes it's different. And But they're, they're going to be able to do that. So I, I like the economics of this, where they said, well, we're going to have two guys in space. Like, why don't we use them? Can we use them? Can we actually keep them up there? Like, yeah, let's do that. Let's, let's put these guys to work. So... I wonder how they felt about that. It's like probably into it, right? Probably like if if I'm going to go into space, maybe I should get a few months of, of ISS work in and not just don't make me come right back home, especially since these guys were space shuttle people. And so they were going to the ISS on the shuttle and couldn't stay there very long. So, But I like that also they are veterans. They've been to the ISS before. They've been in space multiple times. 
nothing nothing new here for them and that's who you want on this uh first test mission so hopefully end of may we'll uh be in the month of commercial crew the year of commercial crew the the era of commercial crew that'll be good it's exciting so uh before we wrap up you want to take us to to mars and back i do through a rube goldberg system of sample return okay (laughs) okay so we've spoken some about the Perseverance rover that's slated to launch this summer to hit that that Mars window. Part of what this rover is going to do, part of its difference uh, from Curiosity, is that it's going to be collecting and then storing core samples from Martian rocks for a sample return mission. So to get those samples back to Earth where they can be studied up close and in person. So uh, NASA and ESA are working together on this. And it's a multi-step process. So you have the the rover itself going around, collecting samples. Uh, They want to launch this return mission uh, as soon as 2026, so to get into one of those launch windows. Uh, The U.S. is building a stationary lander that would set down near the rover. But this lander has a little little buddy, a little buddy, little rover, who will then Hmm. uh, deploy... And go over to Perseverance and collect the samples and then bring it back to the lander. At that point, they would be transferred to ESA's Earth Return Orbiter uh, via the NASA Mars Ascent Vehicle. So you have NASA lander, ESA little baby rover, NASA Ascent Vehicle, basically a rocket to get those samples into orbit around Mars. And then ESA's will take over again. It's Earth return orbiter, which would then um, bring those back to Earth in a capsule, then re-enter the atmosphere in 2031. So it's this multi-step process to collect the samples, transfer them a couple of times, and then get them home. Okay, so let me let me see if I got this straight. Okay. So we have Mars 2020, Perseverance. They're mm-hmm. going to collect the samples. Yes. Then we send a lander down near Mars 2020. Mm-hmm. The lander's got a little rover of its own that goes and, like, gets the box of rocks that Mars 2020 collected. Right. It puts that in a different vehicle, the Mars Ascent vehicle? or is Yes, which is a rocket atop the lander. Atop the lander, okay. Mm-hmm. So it's it's it comes back to the lander from which it, it left, mm-hmm. and it puts the box inside the upper stage. Mm-hmm. That shoots off into Mars orbit mm-hmm. and rendezvous with... ESA's spacecraft, which then takes the box home from the ascent vehicle, fires out of Mars orbit, comes back to Earth orbit, and re-enters, or some portion of it with that box re-enters and lands in the desert in Utah. That's right. You got all 18 steps. <laughs> what could go wrong? It's a complicated thing, and yeah. NASA is is fully aware of that in these articles, uh, that we're going to link to, but the reason it's in the news is that they have released details about the Mars Ascent Vehicle, so the rocket to launch from the Martian surface into orbit around Mars. The rest of this is pretty easy to comprehend, right? You've got a lander and a rover. We kind of, it's easy to wrap our heads around. Launching from the surface of Mars would be a first, and you have a lot of things that work in your favor. You have far less atmosphere. You have a little less gravity. And we're only talking about between 30 and 35 pounds of sample to return, you know, with its enclosure and everything. So we're not we're not lifting hundreds of pounds back into orbit, right? It's not that much material. But it's all got to fit 
on the lander, which means it's got to go through the atmosphere of Mars, you know, do the error breaking, all that stuff we've talked about before behind this lander in the same package. So it can't be right. all that big. Uh, in fact, it can be no taller than 9.2 feet and a max <laughs> width of about of about 1.9 feet. So it's not not a big rocket. The illustration um, that NASA has come up with, it, it looks like a almost like a missile. It does. That, that gets fired from the top of this lander. But that's that's essentially what's happening. Also, what I find fascinating here is this is essentially the first time that we will be putting something down on the surface of Mars that's capable of leaving Mars, right? That's mm-hmm. part of the deal here. So we have to have something with propellant that can fly, that can reach escape velocity and get back out with its box of rocks. Yeah. So that's a, I mean, this is high degree of difficulty stuff, but the U.S. has shown especially that it, we've gotten really good at Mars stuff. So this is the next step there. And, and you know, 20, 30 pounds doesn't seem like a lot, but it's also a lot more than just like a bag of dust or something. Like it's a, and, and we've learned so much from the samples returned by, uh, by the astronauts on the moon. Mm-hmm. That uh, that is why they're motivated to do this is we've got robot explorers that can pick up interesting samples and collect them. It's not a random selection. They can rove around and pick them. And that's what Mars 2020 will do. And then we got to get them back. So it's very cool. Um, Complicated, but I'm glad that they're working on this and that we got these details because these have been vague for a while. Right. It's like, yeah, yeah, we're going to do a sample return mission. And now it's like, no, here's how we're going to do it. Uh, and one of the issues you, you touched on is you have to have propellant. And if you think about how difficult it is to land on Mars, you got to have something that can withstand all of that, all of those forces. And you need something that's really reliable. Because if this doesn't work, if it doesn't light, then you're stuck. You can't go out to the launch pad to fix it because the launch pad is on Mars. And so they're looking at a two-stage system, but both stages would be uh, solid, basically solid fuel, so like a solid rocket booster on the, the right. shuttle of the SLS, because those are uh, extremely easy to light. And once it's lit, it's lit. Uh, yeah. They're very well known. You you understand how it's going to behave. And critically, they're very simple. There's not a lot of moving components here where if you were using um, some other propellant, you'd have, you know, potentially... Uh, super cooled liquids to deal with or liquid fuel to, to deal with where these things are a lot simpler. And so I think that's makes a lot of sense. And these articles go into, into those details. Uh, but yeah, it's, it's finally putting some details onto a plan that was uh, not real solid before. And I am, I'm just super excited about this mission because it's going to really open our eyes to a lot of things going on, on and below the surface of Mars in a way that as good as our rovers have gotten, and as good as the landers have gotten, it's just different when you have it in a lab here on Earth. And it's going to be a fantastic mission if it goes well. And I, you know, I joke about calling it a box of rocks. It's actually a pretty cool thing. And the, the Space Flight Now article that we're linking to has a has a NASA image of it where it's this, it's basically a um, sort of a plastic uh, circle uh, with a bunch of little narrow sample tubes inside so that they can make a bunch of different samples. They're all in this tube. They've got a bunch of these tubes, and the tubes go in little holes in the sample container, and then you you know you cover it, and that's the thing that you return to Earth. So they, it's modular; it's not just like a loose collection of junk. It's a bunch of different individual samples all packed together in this uh, return container. 
And uh, they're even doing in this in this uh, collection of tubes, there are going to be some that are empty to help analyze any molecules that came from Mars and what came from Earth, potentially. So if the inside of one of these tubes has something that's in all the others, well, maybe that was from us. Uh, right. So that, that really thought through. And yeah, and you want these things to be well packaged, right? You don't want, you don't want to, to open the box in, uh, a, you know, eight years or whatever and realize that they're all uh, destroyed and your samples are right. all mixed up and that sort of thing. Because these samples are going to come from different areas. And so they need to know what they're pulling out of this little capsule is exactly what Perseverance put in it years before. Exactly. It's really cool. I'm really excited about this mission. I really am. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, I think that does it, Jason. I think so. A lot of stuff going on. Commercial crew, especially. Very exciting. Um, And we will get in the next fortnight, either, depending on kind of what happens in the next couple of weeks, either we'll be back with our usual kind of newsy stuff or, or, uh, or, or we'll get to Hubble at 30. One of those, depending on what's going on. And then, uh, and then hopefully we'll be in the month of commercial crew then. Sounds great. If you want to find links to the stories we spoke about, head on over to our website, relay.fm slash liftoff slash 122. Uh, while you're there, you can get in touch. There's an email link with, uh, you can send feedback or follow up through. Uh, you can become a member and support liftoff directly. Uh, thank you very much for those who have joined us to support us. If you have uh, feedback, you can find us on Twitter. You can do that too. Jason is there as J Snell and you can find me on Twitter as ISMH. Until our next fortnight, Jason, say goodbye. Goodbye, everybody. Adios.